Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you grant us attentive and receptive minds and hearts today. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us, your wisdom, your understanding. And Lord, stir our hearts in your love and grace. And in your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 5. Let's turn there in our Bibles this morning. John chapter 5. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John, I, I want us to realize that oftentimes, depending on which Gospel you, you read and you study, uh, while they all fit so well together because God's Word never contradicts itself, we oftentimes have to deal with certain little gaps that take place. And, uh, and yet they're, they're filled in, in some other gospel possibly. So when we, when we see Jesus the last time in chapter 4, he had been on his way up to the north uh, in the Galilee region, on his way through a place called Samaria where most Jews would not go. In fact, nearly all Jews would not go through Samaria, but Jesus did because of one person that he went to meet there. One person at a well in Shechem, a woman. And I mentioned the, the, the importance of one single person that Jesus will meet. We find after that particular time that Jesus ends up in, in the Galilee area in a city of Cana, in this city of Cana, which was also... Uh, significant back in chapter 2 where the first miracle in John in the gospel of John is, is recorded the turning of water into wine in, in Cana but there again someone comes to him a nobleman who has a son who is near death in Capernaum a good distance away And Jesus heals his son from that far distance. And he tells him, go home, your son is healed. Between that time and the beginning of chapter 5, John records no other incident. Because we find Jesus now in Jerusalem. Because of a feast. So we pick up in verse 1 where it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. <clears throat> now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk of blind halt, which means lame, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. We'll explain that in a moment. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. I will definitely explain this particular verse later. 
And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lie, which meant that he saw him lying on a bed, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I, while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. Now, as we approach this study today, and for today only, we're going to look at this particular passage in a very general way, very general sense. There are a lot of specifics that we will come back, actually, to see and to look at as far as verses 3 and 4 are concerned, particularly. And we'll deal with that at another time. But for today, because we're coming to the table of communion this, afternoon, uh, this morning and afternoon, uh, I just want to give you a, a, a general understanding of what is taking place and what is going to take place after this, of course, with a mention of the Sabbath at the end. In other words, a mention of the fact that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. That becomes a, a, a certainly an issue of contention with, with the Jewish people. But what this chapter is going to reveal for us is that Jesus, the Messiah, is the authority over all of life. He is the authority over all of life. He is due the same worship, he is due the same obedience, and he is due the same service as God, for he is equal with God. We know that from the Word of God. We know that from the Scriptures, that he is equal with God. But what we're going to look at that understanding is really, really from the perspective of the people, because if we go down a few verses, after this particular uh, event begins to uh, and controversy begins to uh, begin, uh, take place. Verses 17 and 18, it says, But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now isn't that interesting? This is something that, that we need to understand going in, that if he is authority over all of life, that he has power over all of life. But the, from their perspective, they saw him as breaking the Sabbath. Now, do you think that the one who, who, who actually established the Sabbath as the creator of the heavens and earth is one who's going to break the Sabbath? Of course not. But that shows us how they had missed the perspective that God wanted them to have of his word. And then the very fact that they said that he, they would hear him say that he, God was his father, therefore they accused him of making himself equal with God. But we know he was and is, you see. And this is, as well gives us another perspective that a lot of times people don't realize. But for Jesus to, to claim that, to make that claim, that he is the son of God, that is to show that he is truly Messiah and that they missed it. Yet they accused him of being equal to God. So how much did they know, you see, of the word of God? 
yet they were still blind. Still blind. Now in another, position, in another instance or issue, as, as it were, as God possesses life within himself, so Jesus possesses life within himself as well. We learn this in verse 26. For it says in verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. These are the words of Jesus here in chapter 5, verse 26. And so, as God has authority over all of life, so Jesus has authority over all of life as well. And in revealing his authority, the Lord demonstrated the truth of his authority. What did he do? He healed a man who had been ill for 38 years. And he healed him when? On the Sabbath. He healed him on the Sabbath. Both of these acts illustrate the truth of his authority. The healing of the man showed his authority over the physical world and doing so on the Sabbath showed his authority to determine the rules and the standards of worship. And again, they accused him of breaking the Sabbath, yet he established the Sabbath. Because we know that Jesus is the creator. Colossians chapter 1. So, he establishes the rule and the standards of worship. And now, after demonstrating the truth of his equality with God, he then began to teach the truth. This procedure of first demonstrating the truth and then teaching it was to be followed time and again as Jesus revealed what he was throughout the Gospel of John We'll see it more in chapter 6, a little bit in chapter 8, and really throughout the rest of the gospel. But before we look a little more closely at this text, let me just say that the first three miracles of John's gospel show us a pattern of how a person is to be saved. The first three miracles show us a pattern of how a person is to be saved. In the first miracle in Cana of Galilee, when Jesus turned water into wine. We see that salvation is by and through the word of God. Now remember that in, in, in that instance, uh, they had run out of wine and they didn't know what to do. And Mary tells Jesus to help them out. And then what she says to the servants is what is significant. She said, whatsoever he tells you, do it. Whatever he tells you, that's, if, when Jesus speaks, that's the word of God. And it brings to mind then the biblical theological position that, as Paul established it in Romans 10, verse 17, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So that establishes in that first miracle that first step in, this, in, in the process of salvation. Secondly, which brings us to the second miracle, of course, is the healing of the nobleman's son. And the second step in the process of salvation is that salvation is by faith. It is by faith. We trust the word of the Lord. We hear the word and we trust the word. Just as, as, as it took the faith 
of the father of this father to believe that his son was healed when Jesus said, "Go thy way, your son is healed." He believed it. He didn't argue with God. He didn't. I mean, he didn't argue with Jesus. He, did, he didn't uh, discuss with Jesus anything. He didn't try to see. Are you are you sure? You know, uh, he's he's about twenty thirty miles away. Are you are you sure? He doesn't go through this. He just believes. Your son liveth, he says. Go thy way. And the man believed, it tells us. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him and he went his way. That's faith. And here in this third miracle, the healing of the paralytic man, salvation is by God's grace. It has to be by God's grace. Because we're not, we don't save ourselves. What is it that Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse, verses 8 and 9? We're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. By grace through faith. But it's God's grace, which is unmerited, undeserved favor. Wonderful, isn't it? And by the way, this event that we're looking at today took place at a pool called Bethesda, which means, Bethesda means house of grace. House of grace and mercy. Isn't that a beautiful thought? So with these things in mind, let's consider the text. We need to come back to verses 1 through 4. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, Usually when we see go up, we always think we go from the south to the north. But anytime you go to Jerusalem, whether you come from the east, south, north, or west, you always go up to Jerusalem. You always walk up because it's, Jerusalem is built up on, 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 a, on a mount. It's on a hill. You've got to go up. So whether you come from the north, south, east, or west, you, you go up to Jerusalem. Just a little geographical, biblical geographical note there. And now there is a Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool. And most of your translations may have the word market or whatever word is used there, but uh, that's in italics, which means that the, excuse me, the translators actually put that word in there to give some uh, context and understanding uh, to the one word sheep. But in fact, what, what it's speaking of is a gate, a sheep gate, which in Jerusalem there was actually a sheep's gate. And it was up in the northern part of the city. Uh, where actually the pool of Bethesda is and was. And uh, notice it says, which is called in the Hebrew tongue, Bethesda, or Beth- Bethesda, the English pronunciation, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, uh, waiting. Halt, again, is lame. Uh, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And we'll explain that certainly in a moment. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And we're not going to deal with that verse today. We will deal with it uh, next time. But it's important for us to read it and to understand it uh, in a basic general sense. Well, there have been many major 
questions asked down through the years as to the feast that is mentioned in this passage. We aren't told which feast it is, but we're not going to really deal with all the questions today, but suffice it to say that we know that it was probably one of the feasts that collectively was called one of the feasts of obligations by the Jewish people. Now, we are on Wednesday night studying the Feast of Israel, and, and uh, we've come up to the third feast now. Uh, the, the next uh, study is on the third feast. The first three feasts are Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Uh, but they are so closely uh, related that they're either called, all three together are called Passover or unleavened bread. So, it was required of men as the spiritual leaders of their home to come to Jerusalem to sacrifice uh, and, and to participate in this feast uh, there. There was also the need for them to come for the feast of, of harvest, which, was, which uh, later would be called the feast of Pentecost. Uh, the Feast of Shavuot in the Hebrew. And uh, that was a few months later. Uh, the, the, feasts, the, the first three feasts were held in the spring, March, April. Uh, the, um, the Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost was, was in, in May, early May, uh, uh, June. It was a, a summer feast. A few months later, in September, then would come the, three, the, the final three feasts of Trumpets, Day of Atonement and Tabernacles, Sukkot. And uh, those three feasts are, are, are very related as well. What we're studying on Wednesday nights, but this is a commercial by the way, we're studying the feasts because in the last three feasts that we're going to be studying, which is uh, in a few weeks, uh, Trumpets, um, Day of Atonement and um, Tabernacles, those three have the most prophetic significance to the days and times in which we live today in the, the days and times in which we are now. So, I uh, encourage you to come when you can. But, the men were required to come to Jerusalem. And, and uh, by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 16, I've got to get back on track here. Deut- Deuteronomy 16 verse 16 says this, Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place in w- which he shall choose. Now, again, not only the males came, they actually brought their families to Jerusalem. The males, though, because of their, their spiritual leadership, were required to bring their families to worship on these three uh, particular feasts. The next part of the verse says, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also Passover, and in the Feast of Weeks, which is the Feast of Shavuot, which is the Feast of Harvest, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, the more significant of the last uh, three feasts, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty, which means you don't come to these feasts without coming with a sacrifice. So sacrifices were to be made at that time as well. Now, while we don't know exactly what feast it was uh, at the time uh, of Jesus there in, um, in Jerusalem, more than likely it was the feast of Passover. Many believe it was Passover. There are some people who believe it could have been one of the other uh, feasts outside of the seven uh, feasts of Israel, like the Feast of Purim, which is the feast uh, that's connected to the book of Esther, or the Feast of Hanukkah. It wouldn't have been Hanukkah because that's in the, in the winter, and they, they weren't required to come for that. But, but nonetheless, the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, uh, that's usually in December. But uh, Passover makes a lot of sense in, in a lot of ways. And so in accordance of the law, 
Jesus went down from Galilee to participate in the feast. Now, the Passover feast had to have been of exceptional interest to the Lord, for he knew very well that every Passover lamb that was sacrificed at that time was a picture or a shadow of himself. Even as we are told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verses, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 5 verses 7 and 8, where Paul says, purge out therefore the old leaven. Notice the mention of leaven. That you may be a new lump as you are unleavened. Leaven is a type of sin. And then he says, for even Christ our Passover. Jesus was our Passover lamb. Even as Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. Not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so, with what takes place at the pool of Bethesda, it, it, it makes some sense that Jesus was there during the feast of Passover. Because as he's moving in and out among the people, he happened to pass the pool of Bethesda. But let me say this. Jesus just didn't happen to do anything. He always did things on purpose. Just as he didn't just happen to walk through Samaria one day and say, well, I'm just going to go to this well and see what happens. No, he knew exactly what was going to happen. Because he knew what was needed in that place. And he knew who it was that needed it. So here he goes to the pool of Bethesda, which, as I said earlier, was near the Sheep's Gate. Today known as St. Stephen's Gate. And uh, those of you who have been to Israel with us, uh, we've all, we always go to uh, the Pool of Bethesda. Uh, there we, we go by the Sheep Gate, which is actually in the Muslim quarter of, of, of uh, the old city of Jerusalem. The Pool of Bethesda, the excavations of the Pool of Bethesda are found in uh, uh, an area that uh, contains a, a church called St. Anne's Church. We go there, we go inside, we sing. It has tremendous acoustics, so every, you know, every church goes in and sings a song. And anyway, but then we go out and we go to the Pool of Bethesda. It's right there, the excavation of it. And you begin to see how, the, you know, the layers of, 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 uh, of ways to get down to the, where the pool is. And, and certainly they're still excavating, so there's still some work being done to reveal the five pools that surround it. Well, and while many people have tried to negate the existence of, of this pool, or else they try to place it somewhere else. For example, some, believe, some say that it's actually at the Pool of Siloam. But Siloam is in, 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 the, in the south, in the city of David, so that's, it's not even in the same area. Because the Sheep Gate is up in the north, so therefore that's letting us know that the Pool of Bethesda is not the Pool of Siloam. But whatever anybody may think, it is now there, and the excavations have been pretty clear that that's more than likely the... the uh, the true place of, of the of the pool of Bethesda. But anyway, our text tells us that it had five porches or coverings for protection from the elements. Our text tells us that there's a lot of hurting people there. A lot of people hurting. All kinds of hurting. Sick, sick people. And they would gather by the waters of the pool for when for when the waters were stirred or bubbled 
as our text says, troubled. When the waters were troubled, they tried to run to the pool, or if they weren't able to run to the pool, or even walk to the pool, or even crawl to the pool, they had some family member pick them up and try to take them to the pool. And it was a race to see who would get to that pool first, because while the water's being stirred, they believed that once you were put into the water, then you would receive a healing. Wow. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for pool in the text is a word kolumbethron, which, which means a deep pool from underneath which comes bubbling. Now, that wasn't a major thing. I mean, for example, again, if you've been with us to Israel, we, we find a, uh, when we go up to the north to Caesarea Philippi, we, we find the very source of the, of the uh, Jordan River. And it comes from uh, the, the, the water that melts from Mount Hermon, just north of there, and it goes underground, and then it ends up coming out underneath this rock, this massive rock at Caesarea Philippi. You know the place where Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. Not that rock, but upon the rock of, of Peter's faith. It was there in Caesarea Philippi. Well, right there we have been to where the water comes out of the ground. Now, back in Jesus' time, it, was, it, it really came out bubbling. See, so, and, that, and that's what people believe that was, was happening at, at Bethesda. It could be really calm for a while, and then all of a sudden it would just bubble up. I mean, it wasn't some spiritual thing as much as it was just some physical thing that was happening. But uh, then all of a sudden these superstitions started uh, coming out uh, about it and legends and whatnot. And again, we're not going to talk about it today. I, I said too much already. But when an eruption would, would happen, so to speak, uh, of this spring, you'd get this bubbling or stirring of the waters and the people would, would rush to be healed. Well, got to move on. <laughs> so here was this pool, the house of grace. And around it there lay this great multitude of, 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 of sick, impotent people that were, that were blind, that were lame, that were withered, waiting for that water to move. And in a way, that's really sad, isn't it? Because in reality, God could have healed everybody. Jesus could have healed everybody. But these expressions, these conditions, blind, lame, withered, troubled waters, they speak of the results of sin. They speak of the results of sin. Think about it. What does sin do? Sin blinds our eyes to the truth of God and to the glory of God. Sin blinds our eyes from the truth of God and from the glory of God. Sin makes us lame so that we cannot walk in the ways of God. Sin withers up all of our strength so that we are helpless and unable to do anything to save ourselves. But the fact of the matter is we cannot save ourselves. 
We cannot. And spiritually today, there are so many people in this world that are blind, lame, and withered. Spiritually speaking. I mean, you can be as healthy as an ox and be blind, lame, and withered spiritually. By the way, we were once that way ourselves. Right? I didn't hear too many amens on that one. We were once that way ourselves. <laughs> yeah. How many of us, how many of us, seriously, have cried out like Job or David? How many of us have cried out like they did in complaint and confession to God? I think of Job who said in in Job chapter 10 verse 1, he says, My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. How many of us have have sunk to that depth of, of being weary, so weary? And we're talking about a man that in the very first chapter of the book of Job, we are told was a blameless man. A devoted, blameless man. A man who loved God and served God. And yet after all of these things that had happened to him in just those short first two chapters of the book of Job. And his friends didn't help him much either, but there he was. Crying out in this manner, my soul is weary of my life. I'll speak in the bitterness of my soul. Or David in Psalm 31 who said in verse 10, for my life is spent with grief. My years with sighing, my strength faileth because of my iniquity, my sin. David was just being open and honest. We know that David knew the Lord. Or, I mean, the Lord is, uh, these are inspired words. These are, 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 are God-breathed words through this, through this prophet, through this king, through this psalmist. My Strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones are consumed. How many times have we come to that in our own life where we have just openly admitted before God, I know why I am in this condition I'm in. Or we think of this, the words of Psalm 69 verses 1 through 3 where, that begin, Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. You know, when we think of troubles today, we, we use those terminologies that deal with, with water. I mean, the storms of this life. The floods that come. The troubles have come like floods overwhelming me. Even the word overwhelmed has connotations in it, you know, in, in its in its origin has connotations of of a deep uh, undertow that pulls us down into the waters of our troubles. Save me, O God, for the waters are coming unto my soul. I sink in deep mire. That's, That's like really muddy mud. But there's no bottom. You just keep sinking. Because he says, where there is no standing. I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. I mean, you see the language? How many of us have cried out this way? Maybe we didn't realize what it was, but that's all we could 
express. And then he says in verse 3, I am weary of my cry, my throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Now, something changes here. For just a brief moment, the psalmist says, while I wait for my God. Folks, I I entitled this message, Troubled Waters, Hope for Sinners. The waters are going to come. In fact, we, we, most of us can say the waters have come. But I can also tell you there's hope if we wait for the Lord. Y'all should be familiar with Isaiah 40 verse 31. They that wait on the Lord and wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Why does it, you know, this is a beautiful verse, right? A lot of us have it on our mugs. We have it on wall hangings. We have it on plaques. We put it here and there. And that's okay. It's a good reminder. But have you ever thought about this? When a person says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Why do they say that? Because they don't have any strength. They've come out, of, they've come to a point where they're just need of, they're in need of strength. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. You know what that says? Well, we're not in the, we're not in the flood anymore because the eagle has lifted us up above the flood. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of the eagle. They shall run and not be weary. And this is not just about running away from the flood. It is about running into the very arms of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And they shall walk. That's, that's your life. They shall walk and not faint. Wait upon the Lord. I hope and pray you get to that point where you wait upon the Lord in spite of what you're going through today. You need to understand that. David, Job, the prophets, the apostles, they had to wait upon God many times. Because the floods of this world were ravaging. And there were desperate needs of that sort that Jesus saw that day in Jerusalem. And despite the superstitions and the legends behind the stirring and the assumed healings in the pool and the multitudes there seeking the same miracle, there was one man, one man that Jesus focused his attention upon Look at verse 5 of our text in John 5. And a certain man was there, a certain man, which had an infirmity 30 and 8 years. It tells us that he was a little older than Jesus. And when Jesus saw him lie, which means when Jesus saw him lying on his bed, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, in that condition, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made well, in other words? But notice the response. The impotent man answered him, Sir, (laughs) that's respect. 
But then he says, sir, I, I have no man. When, when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. If he was as lame as he was, he had to use every bit of way to get there and it never worked. Never worked, even if he was close. And Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. <laughs> and immediately, how many of you know what that means? Immediately. How do we interpret that? Immediately. Okay, good. We got a smart crowd here today. Can't get one past you all. Immediately, the man was made whole. Boom. And took up his bed and walked. When did Jesus see him? He saw him lying on his bed. You know what that says? The bed was carrying him. In a moment, he's carrying his bed and he walked. And it happened on the Sabbath, which is for another time. Now I want you to consider, if you will, for a moment, pictures and illustrations, the shadows of things to come from the Hebrew Scriptures for just a moment. And I want you to consider that the five porches or the coverings what they could represent. I'm not saying that this is what they represent, but what they could represent. Because oftentimes we see a lot of numbers used in the scriptures that mean something, and it's always consistently what it means. For example, the number seven, you know, the perfection of God, the number, the number eight is a new beginning, so on and so forth. Uh, and so they're used very, very, very uh, wisely and properly in, in the scriptures. But the number five also has a meaning to it. But just for a moment, consider that it could mean this. It could mean that these five porches or coverings could represent the Pentateuch, which is the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then it would be what? It would be a picture of the law. It would be a picture of the law. Are you getting me? I'm, I'm just saying what it could be. It, it could be a picture of the law. So think for just a moment. Many people there running for shelter under it, running to be covered by it, but they can't be healed by the law. The law can't heal anyone. The law wasn't meant to heal anyone. As good as the law is, listen, you can read, read Psalm 19 today as, as, as your devotional for this afternoon, if you will, and read the beauty of what the law is. Read Psalm 119, but they'll take, you know, a little longer than just an afternoon. It's the longest uh, chapter in the Bible, you know, Psalm 119. It's all about the law, the statutes of God, and the beauty of it. But also remember this, that the law is hard. It was written, written by the finger of God on stone tablets for a reason. The law is hard. There's no mercy. In the law, in and of itself, there's no mercy in the law. Only judgment for failing to keep it. Now remember this, and this is kind of a secret. Let me give you a secret here. 
what the law is, is a school teacher, schoolmaster, tutor, to point us to Jesus. <laughs> That's the law. But the law doesn't heal. And then think of this. There are those who are legalists and they, you know, they boast on the fact that they keep this law and they keep that law and they do this and they do that. And some even will go keep the, you know, the, uh, the kosher laws and, and so on and so forth. So some people will feel good about their actions, the things that they're doing. But there's no true healing in that because we're not saved by our works. Simply, we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by what we do. So there's that dilemma. Only if those five porches represented the law. Here's something that we need to remember. For the most part, the number five in Scripture represents grace. It represents the grace of God. Now, I don't have time to go into a great detail about that. I will next time. Because it's, it's really important to understand that situation now in a more a detailed way. And then we'll do that the next time. But I want you to consider where we are. The pool of Bethesda, which means we're at the pool of the house of grace. There's a complete giveaway. So just consider then this man's helplessness. Consider his helplessness. He was all alone in the world, wasn't he? I mean, he had, he had no family or friend to, to help him. And then think of this. He didn't even seek the Savior. He didn't seek out Jesus. He didn't ask Jesus to heal him. But Jesus sought him out. Jesus sought him. Jesus came seeking him. That's why I say he didn't go there by happenstance. He knew what he was doing. He knew who he was going to see. He knew what he was going to see. And he knew what he was going to do. And that gives us another great picture and a, of a great truth. And that is Luke 19 verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We have to be very careful as believers in Jesus Christ that we don't mislead people to Christ. Because oftentimes we say, look, just, 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 just seek Jesus, you know, just seek Jesus. No, you have to bring them to Jesus because they're not seeking after the Lord. They're really not. That's why when you see words in the scriptures that pertain to seeking, usually it is given to the children of Israel who are supposed to be believers or to true believers. For example, the passage that says to us, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. And we at times need that to remember that we need to seek him out. But to the unbeliever, Jesus said, come to me. He sought them out. He sought us out. And he said, come to me. All ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. 
And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that that wonderful? Come to me. There's Jesus. With open arms. Having done what no one else could do. Died for us. On the cross. Come to me. All you that labor and are heavy laden. So Jesus comes to this man. And he asks him a simple question. Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made well? That's a simple question. And it deserves a simple answer. What would you answer? You'd say, you betcha. I'm going up, I'm going up to the upper, upper Midwest here soon, and so I've got to get ready to talk like they talk. You betcha. You betcha. Oh, down here, you know, you can say, orale, Simon. Yes, you know, yes, I see it. That's the answer. You want to be made whole? Yes. I can't get to the water. Yes, I want to be made whole. But that's not what the man told Jesus. He told why he was still in his condition and that no one would place him in the water. In our own lives, God wants to set us free. In areas of bondage. That, and, and, and then we tell him all the reasons why we can't. So the answer to the question is a simple yes. So I encourage you. I even challenge you. To never limit what the Lord wants to do in your life. Never limit what the Lord wants to do in our lives by putting Him in a box. Let's not put the Lord in a box. Folks, when we leave here today, He's going with us. He doesn't stand here in front of us. See you guys later. Yeah, I hope you come back next week. Oh. No, He goes with you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. By the way, He can heal. He still heals. And He can still set free every captive. Amen? But most importantly... He sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. Folks, that is ultimate. Paul said this, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ. And by the way, what's essential here is those two words, in Christ. You've got to be in Christ. But therefore, if anyone, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. I know some of you said, you know, in, in some of the modern translations, you're a new creation. Uh, you're a creature too. Yeah, so. But you're a new one, a new creature. Uh, all things are passed away. What does it mean to pass away? All things are dead, folks. All things are dead. Behold, all things have become new. You are new. I don't care if you've been with the Lord five days or five years or 50 years. You're new. 
And we need to remember that if the Son therefore shall make us free, as Jesus said in John 8, 36, if the Son therefore makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So notice how this man was set free. He was not set free by man's help. He was not set free by the law. He was not set free by rules and regulations. He was set free by Jesus Christ. And the Lord simply commanded him to rise, take up thy bed and walk. And the man immediately, immediately did it. So let's remember that the number five in scripture is in fact the number of grace. This was undeserved favor. I mean, you know, if, any, if, if we had asked that man the same question, he'd have said, well, you know, I can't do this because I haven't got to the water. He'd say, okay, we'll see you later, man. Because that, that's us, but not Jesus. Okay, do you understand that? That's not the Lord. In spite of that man's response, Jesus healed him. But then in an instant, everything changed. Because not only did he respond by getting up, he responded by faith. He trusted. He trusted. And he just got up. I wish I would have been there because I wanted to hear all the bones fall into place. 38 years, they were all a mush inside of him. And all of a sudden, <laughs> Oh, I said, man, he's up there and he's just taking his bed now. You know, the man whose bed was carrying him is now carrying his bed. He's like, all right. It would have been nice to hear all those bones get into place. But yeah, you know, I, I know that you guys in the morning, <laughs> doing all kinds of things there. But for 38 years, wow. When the children of Israel were set free from their bondage in Egypt, the Lord placed them in a hopeless situation to test their faith. You see, the Red Sea was before them. They had mountains on either side of them. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians were coming up from behind to bring them into captivity. And when the people saw this, they started to complain to Moses and they complained to God for getting them into this mess. Moses could have made all kinds of excuses why this happened, but he didn't. And God could have just had enough of them and just said, you know what, I'm, t- I'm sick and tired of your complaints. But he didn't. Consider this, Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14. And Moses said unto the people, fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you to which he will show to you today, for the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. What a picture that is of us leaving Egypt, leaving the life of sin, leaving the bondage of sin and death, and saying, see you later Egypt, see you later sin, you'll never see them again. Is that your life? I hope that's your life today. And notice this, verse 14 is even better. The Lord shall fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. The Lord shall fight for you. The Lord fights for you every day. Listen, you guys remember Second Chronicles chapter 20 and Jehoshaphat and the children of Judah. 
being surrounded by three armies from on three fronts. And they were so fearful, they got on their faces and began to pray unto the Lord. And the Lord spoke to them and told them, get up and start worshiping me. Worship me. That's your, that's your weapon. And, the, and, the, and the, the worship leaders went before the children of Israel and they began to worship the Lord. And when they did that, the three armies destroyed themselves. They fought against each other. And God defeated them because the children of Israel, the children of Judah got up and they praised God. Are you praising God in the midst of your troubles? Are you praising God in the midst of your trials? Are you praising God in the midst of the troubled waters that you're finding yourselves in? Praise Him. Don't say, I will praise you when I get out of this mess. Praise Him because you're in this mess and know that He's the only one that can get you out. I'm excited here today. You guys, you guys know I'm... <laughs> I'm just a laid-back kind of dude, you know. I'm just kind of... This excites me. Because, folks, we have a great God. An awesome God. He's still here today. And He says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. I am already late. You guys don't mind. We're going to meet in a couple hours here anyway for fellowship, so we might as well stay. No, I'm just kidding. I know some of you got to go. So we know the rest of the story in Egypt. Uh, God told Moses to lift up his rod, stretch out his hand. And as he did, the Red Sea opened up and, and the children of Israel crossed over on dry land. And, and the Egyptians were drowned in the sea as it closed up on them. Folks, God can do the impossible. God can do the impossible. You know why? Because he's God. God can do it. And may we never forget that. May we stand up and walk as he commands us. And listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 19. We'll close with this and come to the table of communion now. Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With God all things are possible. Amen. I'm going to ask the uh, servers to come on up. and let's, let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Father, we thank you so much. Your word is... For us, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is for us our strength. It is our joy. It is our light. It is our food. And we have it, Lord God, with us all the time. And Lord, how we oftentimes forget to look to you. You who are the Word, the Logos, the Word that was made flesh and dwelling among us. How we thank you for that. As we take this bread and this cup together and hold on to it and wait so we can partake of it together. Father, let, let your, your Spirit come in a mighty way. Speak to our hearts. Because we want to be right with you today. We are sinners, and, and you know, this table is for, is for sinners. It's for us to remember what you did for us, how you set us free. So may we reflect on these things now as we receive these precious elements. In Jesus' name, amen.